Hello and welcome to the Pharma Forum podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock. An economic downturn always has effects that reverberate across an industry, and perhaps one of the most visible of those reverberations is in the realm of personnel. More layoffs and less hiring are major bellwethers of the economic health of a space. In pharma, where talent is paramount, it's an especially important dynamic. In today's podcast, brought to you by Advanced Clinical, I'm joined by Steve Mattis, Advanced Clinical's SVP of Strategic Resourcing, and James Nyson, VP of Global Talent and Client Delivery. Advanced Clinical has recently released a report on pharma hiring trends, and we're going to dig into some of their findings. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen James. Thanks, Jonah. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, John. Nice to, uh, nice to be here today. So to start off, tell me a little bit about yourselves and about the work that you do at Advanced Clinical. Um, I, th- I think the perspective that you bring to a report like this is really interesting. Thanks for uh, asking, Jonah. My name is Steve Mattis. I oversee our strategic resourcing business globally. And so we support our sponsor clients in their effort to bring drugs to market by providing important resources that they need to uh, conduct clinical trials and to get those drugs approved with the agencies. Uh, we also have a quality and validation business where we help those companies once they join the manufacturing part of their journey, uh, supporting their, their quality validation work that's necessary to get those drugs manufactured. And Jonah, yeah, my name's uh, James Nyson. So as you say, I, I look after the, the delivery of strategic staffing and FSP talent uh, for the business globally. Um, very much, we work across 36 countries. So we have a large global footprint that we're sourcing talent on behalf of pharma biotech sponsors in very interesting places and, you know, some more established places across the world. So talk to me a little bit about the report. What are some of the key findings and the the takeaways here that are interesting? From my perspective, I think we wanted to understand how global economic uncertainty that that we're all facing today is shaping supply and demand of the sponsors that we work with in the industry. And then what the consequential impacts are going to be on the talent pool that we engage with. Yeah, the one thing I would add is what levers or what uh, changes our, our client community are going to be making over the next 12, 24 months as they navigate this themselves and really understanding, you know, what opportunities that presents and what challenges that presents uh, as they go through this next couple of years. So what is the situation um, in, in pharma? I mean, are, are, is, is this a, a tough market for, for the folks with the skills? Um, is it, is it a, a tough situation for the, the companies who are looking to, to fill out the ranks and, and serve all the functions they need served? Um, what, where, where are we? I would say over the last 12 months or so, uh, we do a lot of work in the smaller, mid-sized biotech and pharma uh, industry. And so a lot of those companies are pre-revenue. So they're reliant on raising capital to run clinical trials on the drugs that they're they're working on or the therapeutics they're working on. And so with the the investment community kind of cooling down and, and taking a break on new investments, it's been more of a challenge for them to raise money for new projects. And so that's required them to not only look at not doing new projects, but also look at the projects they are doing and figuring out which ones are maybe closest to success or have the most uh, opportunity for success. And so 
you know, as they slow down and do less projects or cut programs, that has an impact on the employment community, right? The people that are working in the on those programs. And so what we've seen over the last, I would say, year or so um, here in the U.S. alone, I think we've had close to 200 companies do layoffs in that community. And some of them are very ex- extensive, right? Some of them have laid off 70, 80% of their, of their workforce. Wow. And then others have just gone away altogether. Companies have closed down and, and sold off their assets and uh, moved on. So that that's made it challenging for the market. Um, and it's made it challenging for some of the employees that are in that, in that world as well. And I think that's, that's reiterated globally. I think also in parallel, what we've seen that's really fascinating as well is larger companies, top 10, we work with a lot of the large farmers globally. There has been a review post-COVID of their pipeline assets, of efficiencies within their organizations. And there are some programs that are being discontinued that don't necessarily look as attractive as they once did. So the impact is not just necessarily in the smaller world. It's also we're feeling it right the way through, which is, yeah, so it's having impacts on all sizes of companies. And I think the other part of this that we're that's really fascinating is that there there seems to be just a wait and see so there's not there's not activity happening there's pausing of lots and lots of different aspects of company R&D work pausing waiting to see what's happening and that's having an impact on hiring but not just on permanent staff also on contractors yeah and that's sort of what i wanted to ask about next is is you know when these sorts of um, economic shifts happen how do pharma companies respond in terms of of what they're what they're doing with their full-time staff and what they're using contractors for i think you guys mentioned when we did a pre-call of the interview that that contractor what you guys see can be kind of a leading indicator of of what the industry is is going through because of the way that pharma companies use temporary staff. Yeah, that's true. We typically see in the contract world, we typically see us lead into a recession or a slowdown. So companies will typically stop slow down hiring of contractors, slow down hiring in general as we lead into it. And then usually what we see is as we lead out of an economic slowdown or recession, contractors are the first thing to get hired. They're, they're not quite sure that they want to make investments yet. So they start using contractors to really start building their teams. And then as they become more confident in the uh, future of the market, they'll, they'll continue or, in, you know, increase their permanent hiring. And like James said, it's just really been kind of a, a wait and see for the last, I would say six months or so. Um, in, in, a, like James said a moment ago, even in large pharma. So if you think back to like 08, 09, a lot, of, a lot of the larger pharma companies didn't really see that big of a slowdown. So this is a bit unique this time because we are seeing even our even our large pharma clients take a pause as well. And so that's been um, that's been something new and, and different. What happens when there are layoffs and this talent floods the market? I mean, do, do these folks who have been laid off do they come to you and say, "Hey, you know, we want to." We want to do contract work. Are they starting their own startups? I mean, there's no money for that, right? I mean, what what kinds of effects does that have downstream? I think it it has well, it has effects across multiple elements of what we do as an organization. So, you know, when there is 
talent coming into the market through re, through the things that Steve mentioned, right? So there's talent coming in from those companies that are that are smaller, that are having cash issues, all those kind of things that we discussed. So there are those people coming on board, but I think what that has driven is a change in sentiment for people having movement in the job market. When people see redundancies, when people see companies rationalising um, their, 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 their people, they are less keen to, to be moving. They're, 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 they are making sure that they're in a, if they feel in a secure position, they're not moving. So actually, one of the consequences of that is that there's less available talent on the market. Although there is an influx in some areas, it can actually lead to it being more of a challenge to find people because there are less people out there that are willing to make a move at the moment because they see it as being very, un- and rightly so, very uncertain at the moment. Right. It's sort of the devil you know. You want to stay at the job that you have that you know you can, you know, you know exactly what the risks are and what the benefits are. Yeah. And you even see it inside the organization itself where managers are, are trying their best to hold on to people. So it does kind of freeze the market. Yeah, there are people displaced and there are more people in the market looking for work, but you'd be surprised at at how low that number really is. Like James said, a lot of people hunker down and then a lot of managers really fight to keep the really strong, great resources that they that they currently have. In a in a typical market, I would say about 85% of the talent that we work with and and provide to our clients, uh, they're they're not looking for work. They're not they're passive candidates, is what we call them. And so we're recruiting them, we're talking to them, we're forming a relationship, and we're trying to find them their next you know, promotion or area they're really excited to work in. Um, and right now, those people just aren't super interested in talking. They really want to just stay where they're at. Put their head down. That makes sense. Um, so what what advice do you have for for folks who are being impacted by this? Either, you know, the who are, folks we're talking about who are, you know, at a job and kind of feeling lucky to be there or the folks who have been displaced? You know, this is going to sound a little bit self-serving, but I would definitely say find some really strong recruiting relationships, people that have been recruiting in this industry for a long time. And it's not, you know, just to say come to advanced clinical, but it's really the value that you gain from that is these recruiters that have been in the industry for a long time doing this, they have a really good understanding of all the different organizations in the, in the marketplace. So for example, if you're focused on oncology, uh, a really good recruiter is going to know all the oncology companies within a geography that you're looking to work or, or a therapeutic area they're looking to work. And they can just give you a lot of advice, career advice. Here's the companies you maybe not have heard of, you're not thinking of. Here's the the types of things you should be doing with maybe your resume or your search. And a good recruiter will really help coach that person through their next opportunity or, or their journey. And so I would say, you know, the more relationships you can build outside there, uh, is is just going to help you as you make that transition. I think the other part of it is be open minded. You know, we work within FSPs. You know, be minded, be open minded to work within an FSP. If you've worked within big pharma, be open minded to work within a smaller biotech setting. You know, the skills and experience of, the, of some of these people that are coming onto the market might be invaluable with one of our FSP programs, or might be invaluable to a really small biotech. So I think don't get stuck just doing what you've always done. Be open-minded to new types and styles of engagement. You know, and there might even be, be open to being a contractor for a short period of time or long term. 
are there other groups in the, I mean, other stakeholders that are being impacted by this beyond, you know, the pharma companies and, and the biotech startups and groups like CROs? I mean, a, a lot of people need this talent. Um, and, and if it's, if it's drying up or if, if the funding is drying up, you know, what, what else, what else do we see? I think that one of my big concerns is that the con- one of the major consequences of this period of consolidation, lack of hiring, is that the junior talent that we were starting to, for the first time in a long time to bring in over COVID, companies like ours, CROs, Pharma Biotech, were starting to willing to train up people out of college. I worry that that is going to stop again. And we will be in a year or two years time, we'll be back into the war for talent more, more aggressively, um, with more difficulty than we were before. So I think the huge gap will be a skills gap for the future. Yeah, I would agree. Here at Advanced Clinical, we started something called the Excel program where we're bringing in, we're bringing in every quarter a group of people that are from outside the industry and maybe some relevant skills, but typically completely outside of the industry and we're training them. And so we're, we're committed to continuing to make that investment. But, you know, like James said, if that investment slows at, at different organizations, that could certainly have a long-term effect. Because uh, the reality is there's a lot of people in the industry that, you know, are more likely going to retire in the next five to 10 years. And so if we take a break, you look out 10, 15 years, we could have a serious skill shortage. I mean, it, related to that, it, w- this is all happening against the backdrop of this larger national, international conversation about remote and hybrid work after COVID. And that's certainly generational, too. I mean, is that it, it, is this situation putting more pressure on pharma to sort of be more permissive of these non-traditional working options? Or, or is it working in the other direction where they've got a little more of the leverage so they're able to say, come into the office? So that's a really good question. You know, the majority of our companies, our clients have, have really embraced the remote work and, and done that. Um, but what's interesting is in that Excel program that I was just talking about, we've we've got a large group of people new to their career. And one of the things that they've been really vocal about is wanting that in-person engagement. And the reason really is that it's a lot easier for them to learn new skills, learn the industry, learn from people that have been in the, in the business for a long time and are experts. Uh, if they're sitting right by side by side and they're just learning through conversations and lunchtime talk and all that. And so, you know, I'm not quite sure where it goes, but I do think people new to the industry are, are certainly um, going to require some some in-face time with, with their peers. Yeah, I think that's a really important piece of it. We see that a- across industries. Yeah, and I think my perception is, you know, Aaron, what's, what, what, what Steve said, but I'm seeing it, particularly in Europe, I, there is a little bit, I think from, and I see it actually from, from within big pharma and big biotech of there is a, a move back to insisting on a number of days a week in the office. And these are often on contracts that were fully remote. They're now insisting during COVID. So people that were hired on fully remote contracts now being drawn into being some days a week based in the office. And I think that there is probably more assertiveness coming from those organizations with the backdrop of everything that we're discussing today. And I think it will be used to, 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 I think there is a middle way in this. And I think we will emerge from this probably in two or three years time with most companies having 
some time in the office apart as part of the working relationship with their employer. I would agree. Um, even beyond uh, the personnel into, you know, M&A activity, things like that, in terms of how the whole market is going to evolve through this economic time. So are any of those particularly standing out to you or, or that you want to highlight or chat about? Yeah, I think you're going to see, you know, increased M&A. You already have started to see some of it. And you've also started to see some companies merge together, even smaller biotechs are coming together. And maybe one has a really strong asset and the other one's already built out a manufacturing uh, facility. And so if they come together, they're, they're stronger together than they are apart. And maybe one has more cash, whatever the case might be. But I think you're seeing more of that. And then you'll for sure see, you know, large pharma use some of their, their excess capital and go fill their pipeline with new assets as they acquire smaller firms that are, you know, making really good strides in areas like, uh, you know, immunotherapies or gene therapies, things like that. Yeah, and I, I concur with Steve fully there. I think that there's a lot of companies that are undervalued. There's a lot of companies that are seeking cash and don't necessarily see a clear way forward that are much more open to acquisition or, or, or partnership deals. There are also, we also talked about, when the report was talked about the patent cliff as well. So, you know, when you have, and I've been around a couple of patent cliffs in my career, and the result of those patent cliffs often is M&A. You know, you fill the gaps of your patent cliff with acquisitions. So, you know, I think that will also play a part in further M&A as these, as these, as these very large selling products um, start to drop down the, the, uh, the top 10 list. Yeah, the one other thing I, I forgot to mention that you just made me think of, James, is that the number of companies that did an IPO, you know, between, let's say, 2000 and 2002, and now they're, their stock price is quite a bit lower than what they IPO'd at or what their maybe top price was. So like James said, they're undervalued. They're on sale, basically. So there's some really good opportunities for, for companies to pick up really strong assets for a really good value right now. Yeah. So people sort of might assume that less money available means less M&A, but this opportunistic M&A, these, these deals are actually going to be sort of more attractive if a company can see, hey, I can get a quick return here or, or this can set me up for the long term through a difficult period. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. Um, anything else you guys want to talk about? I've got one more, but I want to give you a chance to, to highlight what's, uh, what's on your mind. You know, I was reading an article this morning about um, gene therapies and how many of them are, are potentially coming to market and looking to be approved by the FDA, kind of standing in line to get their approvals. And the numbers are, are pretty large and it'll be interesting. It's going to be very interesting to see over the next, say, 12 months, how many of those are approved and what that does to the, to the overall market. Because um, a lot of these are really life-changing therapies that have been worked on for the last decade or so. We've already seen some approved, but these are really just amazing changes in the way that we treat disease. And so it's going to be very interesting to see how many of these get approved, how quickly all that happens, and then you know what that really does to the, to the investment landscape. Yeah, that area in particular is interesting to me because in, in addition to sort of the fact that, that all those approvals are sort of just that floodgate is waiting to open, um, there's still questions about exactly how those are going to get paid for and therefore kind of what kind of volume of sales they'll do. So for, you know, you know, for a pharma that's making a big bet on gene therapy, it still kind of remains to be seen 
exactly what the returns look like until we can figure out who pays for it, how it's paid for, you know, how how wide the scale is of of um of adoption because of those parameters. Yeah, I think a lot of what you've seen so far is a lot of their approvals have been rare disease, right? So the patient population is fairly small, but you're starting to see more of these um, these be targeted to larger populations, people with uh, you know less rare disease and more mainstream disease. And so, to your point, I think that will be interesting because if you get a blockbuster drug that's going to treat you know a few million people. Um, what does that do to the economies of scale when it comes to pricing and all those parameters? Yeah, for sure. In the in the call we did before, the, the pre-call we did for this podcast, so we talked a little bit about some of the legislation around contract hiring um, that has happened in the U.S. that's been it was sort of aimed at uh, Uber and the gig economy companies, but might also be having some unintended effects on pharma contract staffing. I thought that was really an interesting conversation. So if that's not too far afield, Steve, I'd love to to hear a few thoughts about that. So there is a a fair amount of workforce within the biotech and pharma space that are what we call independent consultants or independent contractors. Um, And a lot of them are in some specific skill areas, right? Where they might have two or three contracts going at any given time. Maybe they're a medical writer, for example. Um, They might be working with three or four uh, client companies and they're working maybe five, 10 hours a week here and there for each one. And they're not necessarily being directed by the client. They're being given more of like a, a piece of work to do. And then they leave and go do the work and turn over the product. And so that's traditionally where a true independent consultant would fit. And there have been certain jurisdictions uh, throughout the U.S. that have been a lot more stringent. And, I, and to your point, going after the Ubers or the more gig work type stuff. And so that has kind of pulled that community into that legislation. And so I know in certain states, they've um, created some workarounds for different skill areas so that they can continue to be independent consultants. But it's definitely something that we navigate, um, you know, our general counsel, who's been in the in the employment industry for 25 years or so. Uh, we work with her quite closely to really make sure that we're, you know, following the rules, but also trying to, to understand, um, you know, what makes most sense for both the employee and the employer. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely one of the challenges that we're facing right now. And then in, in James can speak to Europe, but there's certain countries within Europe that are very similar to say a California or, a, or New Jersey, New York, that type of state in the U S uh, that make the independent consultant situation much more challenging. No, absolutely. And I think the situation in, in Europe is being looked at from a legislative point of view through the lens of the gig economy. Now, in the pharma world, we're used to using freelancers at a very professional level. The EU is looking at legislation that is very much geared towards protection of workers within the gig economy that could have wide-ranging ramifications for a lot of the very, very professional people within pharma. Um, So there there is a movement from a European policy perspective and those countries outside of the EU, like the UK, that is really making the classification challenging between what is a tr- freelancer, what is an employee. So that landscape is evolving, changing, and there's a number of bills in front of the European Parliament at the moment um, that could that could really make being a freelancer, as we know it today, something of the past potentially in the future. Wow. So big changes. And, and I mean, not to give you guys too much of an opportunity to promote here, but... 
if you're a pharma company, is this like a good reason to be working with a staffing agency rather than contracting directly with your contractors? This sort of this sort of thing, these sorts of difficult to navigate changing. Yeah, that's a, a good shout out. I, you know, one of the things that we've been really looking at more and doing more and more of is hiring these people as permanent employees of ours. And so James was talking about our FSP model and really looking at just being really creative with the way we deliver talent to the to the client and client. And so um, whether that's somebody working permanently for us at a couple different clients or um, with us maybe taking on a little more risk and having them be a permanent employee and then we uh, can move them from project to project as as uh, you know projects start and end. But we just try to be really flexible with the way that we're looking at hiring these people and uh, and delivering talent to the, to the end client. So as we come to the end of the podcast, I, I just want to give you guys a chance to kind of sum up, um, especially the the stuff we were talking about at the beginning about the current um, environment in, in, in pharma around personnel and hiring and the, the economic scene. Um, how, how do you guys think it's going to shake out over the next few months? Um, and anything else that our listeners in the pharma industry should be keeping in mind? I think, you know, from what we're seeing is that our customers are looking for flexibility and they're looking at how they can save money. So one of the things that we do, and we talked about it in this podcast, is how we engage with people. So where companies might have gone, might have fully outsourced particular pieces of work in the past, we're seeing many more conversations about how we can do that in a different way, whether that's via strategic staffing, whether that's via FSP to help reduce cost. So I think cost reduction is a big part of what is happening right now and what will be relevant for the next year or two. And I think that that our model is really well suited for helping companies look at how they can reduce cost without eroding inequality. Yeah, the one thing I would add is that well, two things. The the one, like James said, you know, our flexibility and ability to deliver in a lot of different ways, whether we're outsourcing full studies or or helping them partly insource, partly outsource, uh, use contract labor or use an FSP, all those things are very helpful, I think. Um, the other thing I would just say is, you know, we're starting to see more money raised. We're starting to see companies uh, attract capital again. And so I would just say, while we're definitely feeling a little bit of pain right now, the future is definitely bright. I mean, just some of the therapies that have been um, approved just this year and things that are in the pipeline for approval in the next you know, handful of months are just life-changing, really amazing uh, changes the way that we treat disease. And so in the long run, I think it's still a wonderful industry. It's got a ton of opportunity and uh, you know, we're still super excited about what the future holds. Great. And hopefully things will recover quickly so they can bring that junior pipeline in and avoid that talent gap as much as possible. Absolutely. Well, thank you both so much for joining me. It's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, I believe that the report is available. We can add a link to it with the with the podcast and um, and also uh, an address where folks can check out Advanced Clinical and learn more about the company. Absolutely. Great. Thank you, Jonah. Thank you both so Jonah, much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having a conversation. That concludes this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podme. 
where you can find and subscribe by searching for PharmaForum. And don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins and to follow us on Twitter at at PharmaForum. Thanks for listening. Thank you.